such a privilege to be with you today on a special day. As Daniel just mentioned in the prayer, today is the day of Ellie's baptism. Uh, as some of you were present before services today, she was baptized into Christ, and that was very beautiful and very thankful to uh, get to see that happen. And as I told everyone who was gathered then, uh, when someone's baptized into Christ, it reminds us not just that it's a joy to have a new sister in Christ, but it reminds us that we have been baptized. And we are the baptized people of God. And that goes for all of you who have been baptized here among us today. And we rejoice together today that the waters of baptism have purified the people of God gathered here for worship today. Um, just wanted to uh, give you one warning. Uh, we have visitors from Kentucky. I'm not warning you about our visitors from Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> although I might should, actually. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, they came down here, I think, primarily for the weather. They were uh, wanting to, they'd heard about it and wanted to experience it, uh, get away from that 75 to 80 degree weather up in Kentucky and get down here where they're not so cold. Um, but uh, in light of that, I wanted to give you this warning. Josh and I were talking this week and uh, realized that if you, if you pay attention, you'll find that... Uh, there are excessive heat warnings out there, and uh, we just thought it, we probably wouldn't be doing our duty diligence if we didn't uh, tell you it's excessively hot, so uh, just know that. If you can't tell that already, <laughs> we were just laughing. Why, why do they need to warn us that it's excessively hot? <laughs> oh, man, this is what I dreaded when I moved from Kentucky, honestly. I, I, the first two years have not been this bad, but... Uh, Thank God for air conditioners. <laughs> let, me, let me open us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for this gathered people here and for your movement among us. May you receive honor and glory through the words that I speak this morning and through the hearts that hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been journeying through Matthew now, uh, off and on, ever since a year and a half ago, I guess. And uh, we've come... To see Jesus proclaimed, presented, and proclaimed as the Son of God. And now we're getting to see the climax. We have moved up to the base of that mountain where the pinnacle is Jesus, crucified and resurrected. We're not going to spend a long time going through uh, Matthew 26 through 28, precisely because during Holy Week this year, we already did that. Uh, and we spent that, that week. So we're kind of bouncing around a little bit. I hope you can follow. But we are going to touch on these chapters before we conclude with Matthew. And then in the fall, uh, we're going to move into uh, the book of Exodus, going back to the Old Testament. So excited to get to that with you. But here we enter into Jesus has just completed his public teaching ministry. Matthew 25, what Steve talked about last week in conjunction with his experience in Ukraine. And now uh, we move from Jesus' public teaching ministry to his experience going to the cross. But before we get there, we have a very interesting story. It's the interaction with a woman and a box of perfume. I don't know how important perfume is in your life. I gave up on cologne some time ago. Um, I, I think when I was a teenager, I thought it was going to work miracles and somehow draw the ladies in. And I did it for a long time, but it never, it never seemed to work. I don't know. It, I, everything was just the same whether or not I wore it. So, uh, so I don't wear it anymore. I just gave up on it. 
Um, but back in Jesus' day, I don't think people were waking up and spraying themselves with obsession or uh, uh, what was it when I was a kid? Dracar? Is that it? Dr- something like that? Yeah, uh, um, the old stuff. Yeah, whatever you guys use. That uh, Perfume uh, is uh, maybe a lot more common today than it was at one point, especially though we deal today with the story of some really, really expensive perfume that had come from India. Or somewhere in the east, we learn in another account that it was called Nard. Uh, it's not a very good name, but uh, it's a, a good substance, and it was very, very special. Uh, just uh, about a week ago, uh, Terry was telling us that when he was dating Becky, um, she would send him letters, and she would put perfume on those letters. And he would take the letters, and he would smell the perfume uh, to be reminded of uh, the one he loved while they were apart. So um, perfume can be special to us today, but not as special probably as it was, at least not this, this one, not as special as this one was uh, that we're going to read about today, because this perfume that we're reading about today was worth over a whole year's worth of wages for the average day worker uh, in Palestine. It was worth more than 300 denarii or denarii, however you say that, that uh, we can just say 300 big ones. Uh, that's how much it was worth in uh, Palestine at that time. That's what we're told in one of the other accounts. I think Mark's account tells us how much it was worth. And uh, that was very expensive, over a year's worth of wages. This woman may have had this because it was a, a family heirloom passed down, maybe as her social security in case she was ever in great need. This may have been the most expensive thing she owned. And she opened it up and poured it all on Jesus. We're going to talk about why she did that. One of the things that pops up in this passage that we encounter is that uh, this woman was heavily criticized for what she did. In fact, the disciples were indignant, the Bible says, about what they did, uh, what she did. And they say, this could have been given to the poor. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. It seems like an objection that Jesus is going to agree with. And Jesus responds with this passage that has often misled Christians and often been misused. He says, the poor you have with you always. Leave her alone. Don't trouble her. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. And people take that sometimes, and what they do with it is they minimize our responsibility to the poor. And that's a misuse of this passage. As if Jesus, who was constantly advocating for the poor, now takes this moment to correct them and say, well, you can't really do anything about it anyway. The poor you have with you always, so let's go car shopping. Right? That, that's the way I've heard people use this passage in a way like that at, at times. When we're talking about what we should do to help the poor, they will say, well, you always got the poor with you. Can't really do anything about that. Let's spend it on ourselves. <laughs> that's not what Jesus meant. What he's doing, actually, you see up there, I've, I've moved a little too quickly with the slides. You're probably ahead of me. But uh, it, he's referencing a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 15. And this passage is heavily emphasizing the need for God's people to care for the poor. You shall give to him, the poor person, freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, here's the conclusion we come to because of that. 
The conclusion is not, don't worry about them, they're always going to be there. Therefore, since they're always there, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That's the conclusion you come to. And Jesus did not mean to undermine the scripture. He's referencing it. And he's saying, the, the, the point he's making is, you're going to always have the opportunity to help the poor, so do that. But you don't have the opportunity that this woman has right now. What she's doing right now is actually, he says, and I don't know that she knew she was doing this, right? But Jesus interprets this this way because he knew he was about to die. He said, she's preparing my body for burial. And that was considered a very important work in the Jewish mind at that time. In fact, at least in some strands of thinking, it outweighed the obligation to give alms and to help the poor. It was to care for a dead, dead body to make sure a body gets buried. And Jesus interprets it that way in light of his impending death. The point is not don't help the poor because they're always going to be there. The point is you're going to have a lot of opportunity to help the poor. So do that in the future. But right now there's a different opportunity that we're going to focus on. And I just want to, I want to emphasize this. I, I tried, a couple of weeks ago I tried to get this balance right when I, when I spoke. For those of you who aren't here, it was a spontaneous moment really because uh, Steve wasn't able to make it back. And so I talked about what was in the news with the abortion issue and uh, tried to be very clear on my thoughts about that. Um, years ago, I was preaching in Louisiana, and uh, somehow, I don't remember what the sermon was or what, what I was talking about exactly, but I, I ended up on these kind of issues. And I said, if Jesus were alive today, he would be radically pro-life, and I believe that. And at the back of the building, a guy who was sitting there, a very political person, he came out with a loud, Amen! And then I said, and Jesus would be radically pro-poor. Silence. <laughs> Something's, something's striking about that, isn't it? You see, we harm our witness for Christ when we are so tied to our political agendas that we can't follow Jesus where he leads us. And Jesus does lead us, in my opinion, very clearly we should be people who are pro-life, who are for life in all its forms, uh, whether that's in the womb or outside the womb. But Jesus also draws us to be people who have hearts for the poor, hearts that care about the conditions that are leading a lot of impoverished people to want to get abortions, hearts that care about the children who are born into poverty or born into orphans' homes or whatever. Right, you know, we, I, I'm repeating the things that I, I tried to say a couple weeks ago, but I, I just want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, to be a person who cares more about Jesus than any social political agenda and is ready to follow him wherever he leads. Jesus was not saying here with this passage when his disciples said, we should care for the poor. He wasn't saying, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> You're going to always have poor people. That's a total misuse of this passage, and I want to get that out of the way before we go any further. But I want to talk the rest of the time here about this woman and her experience. She did something that you weren't supposed to do. She broke open. And that, from what I've read, there are other ways to get the ointment, the perfume out of this jar. But she broke it open. I don't think that's in Matthew, but maybe in Mark or John, where she breaks it open, indicating she's getting rid of all of it. She's not keeping back a little bit. She breaks it open. Perhaps the most valuable thing she owned. And you think about that. For a poor Palestinian woman, 
perhaps the most valuable possession she has, maybe passed down from her family, she breaks it open and she pours it all on Jesus. What motivates someone to do something like that? She does not ask for permission from the men. Likely what would have been happening, they were all sitting around, you know, back then they didn't have our kind of tables and chairs, so they, they're reclining on the floor, leaning on pillows around the guys up against each other, this male dinner. Very possibly she had to kind of wedge her way in there among these men and break open this bottle, uh, this, this flask, this jar, and pour it on Jesus. She had to have known this was going to annoy people. She did not ask for permission. Certainly she would have been turned away. Thus she becomes not the first person or the last person, last woman, to do something for Jesus that the men disapprove of. It's actually a good thing and a beautiful thing. Thank God that uh, those who are less powerful all across the world don't have to get permission before they worship Jesus. Or a lot of people would have been turned away. This woman comes in and does this. No, she had to have known she was going to be criticized. There were going to be the people who say, you're wasting this. There are also just the people who would say, that's weird. (laughs) You don't see any of us doing that, do you? Does anybody else around you think they need to do anything like that? And may I say to you just up front right now that, that if you're going to adore Jesus, don't believe you can just go through life being like everybody else. Except for you go to church on Sunday. Maybe you don't say cuss words. <laughs> Adoring Jesus Christ will always lead us to be different in ways that it will uh, surprise the people around us. Now, we'd have to try to be weird. Right? Some people seem to think maybe we need to be weird for Jesus on purpose, as if just doing weird stuff, whatever it is, makes you, makes you special somehow. That's not what we're talking about. But following Jesus will always stand out if we really follow him. What motivates someone like this woman to look around at a room of potential critics and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do something reckless. I'm going to do something excessive. I'm going to do something extravagant. You know what motivates that? Love. Yeah. Love does that. I remember years ago, when I was about 19 years old or so, I came upstairs in my house and I found my brother Brad counting baseball cards, pulling out his baseball cards from a box. And it hit me. He didn't tell me he was keeping a secret, but I knew he wants to get engaged <laughs> because he needed money to buy a ring. And he was up there pulling out his baseball cards, trying to see what he could sell off to get money to buy a ring. Love motivates us to do things like that. That's a small thing, but it's an example. This was love that this woman had for Jesus. It was love born of gratitude. Love Seizing a moment it might never get back. Love recognizing the supreme 
worth of the one who loved it. Love looking for a way to express itself in a way that might be somewhere close to appropriate to its object. We're not given the backstory. We don't know what this woman had experienced. What had Jesus done for her? What had he done for those, he lo- for those she loved? How different was her life because Jesus had come into it? We don't know, but we know something had happened. Think about all the people that Jesus encountered, and they went forward, and their lives were never the same again. Here's a woman who has no one else, and now her young son has died, and she happens with the funeral procession going along, she happens to run into Jesus Christ. Stop crying, ma'am. Come back to life, child. Her world's totally different. Here's a leper going along, thinking his life is ruined forever outside of respectable society with his skin corrupting. And here he comes into Jesus and thinks, maybe this guy will have something to do with me. Master, if you're willing, you can make me well. I am willing. Life is different from then on. Over and over again, this is what people encountered with Jesus. And we've read some of these stories and talked about them over the last year and a half. This woman, I don't know what her story was, but I imagine it was similar to one of those guys in one of the many stories that we read in the Gospels. And she had come to love Jesus, and she had heard him say something about dying. Perhaps this is what's motivating her. She knows that she has a moment to seize, and she seizes it, and she says, I am going to show love for him now. And the way I know to do it, she goes and finds the most expensive thing she owns, and she breaks it open, and she pours it all on him. Let me say to you that that kind of love cannot be worked up from the inside. And I really want us just to think about this for a little bit. Sometimes in the Christian faith, you feel like you're, you're taught, in different versions of the Christian faith, you feel like you're taught to be obedient and to do good things and to do what Jesus says, but it's got to come from you. And it's sort of like... God's way up there, and he's given you some things to do, and you need to go show that you can do those things. And then you sort of work that up from the inside. You know, there are times in our lives when we have to do that. There are times when we have to to be obedient, and we have to do what's right, even when we don't feel like it. But I want to say to you that we're not meant to run on that. That's not the the fuel that that the Christian engine is meant to, to burn. We're meant to run on a love that is inspired from the outside, that we don't work up from the inside. But for that to happen, we have to see the beauty of Jesus. We have to actually be captured by who he is and say, that is the person I love, and he is the reflection of God. He's the very image of God, so we love God through him. As we come to understand his worthiness and his goodness, I don't, I don't know exactly the best ways to explain this to you. Let me just uh, say, say a few more words about this. If, uh, if Olivia were to ask me, why do you love me? And I were to say, well, I promised I would. When we got married, 
I said I would. And so I am working hard to love you. Now you see, that, that's not a bad thing, is it? To work hard, to love somebody. But, but we all know something's missing in that, right? If you go visit somebody in the hospital, I think N.T. Wright uses some illustration like this. If you go visit a friend in the hospital and say, oh, thank you so much, so much for coming. And uh, you say, well, you know, I felt like you know, I really had to. And your friend's like, ah, yeah, <laughs> really, really, I just really appreciate it, you know, that you would come. No, really, I just, uh, I felt obligated. Um, and I felt like I had to do this or else I just, I just couldn't get out of it. Now, now, you see, it's good to keep our obligations, isn't it? It's good to know what duties are and try to do them. But something's missing, missing in a relationship if that's all that's there, Right? And we're made for a relationship with God. And outside of, of a love that comes from recognizing the beautiful goodness of Jesus Christ, we're left with this kind of bare-bones duty ethic. Do the right thing. Make sure you've done it. And, and we end up with what my girls say to me at times. It's, it's the question, when they're doing their duty, uh, can I be done now? That's what they say like eating vegetables or cleaning their room. Can I be done now? Can I be done now? Can I stop? When is this over? And that's the way our obedience goes to Jesus. <laughs> when we don't see the beauty of him and his person and the life that he wants to give to us. It's always this, can I be done now, approach to obedience. And likely, if that's what we're living from, we will not understand. We will be dumbfounded by people who want to break open alabaster boxes for Jesus. And very possibly, we will turn a critical eye towards those people and say, oh, that's not necessary. Why do they think they need to do that? Because it's love for Jesus that takes us beyond this mere duty-bound ethic. At times, we all need to do our duty, but there's something more we're called to. The beautiful scripture that we are learning, a lot of us are learning together, families and our kids, that we were quoting, the kids were quoting for us last night, is from Ephesians chapter 3. It's beautiful scripture. Paul prays for the people of God that they will know the love of Christ. How wide and long. Can somebody say it with me? Some of you who know it, how wide and long and high and deep. It's like Paul starts using, he's trying to think about this love that he knows. He knows it in his experience. This love he's encountered with God. And he just goes into poetry almost. It's like he's, he's beneath the ocean and thinking, it's so wide and long and high and deep. I, I can't explain to you, but I want you to know it. it's the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And it's only in that knowledge and that experience of love that we can know the fullness of God. The fullness of God can dwell in us. That's Paul's prayer for the church. That's our prayer right here. That's my prayer for you guys. We know that love, and that brings about a different kind of obedience. I had a preacher, I had a conversation with a preacher a while back. I know this is online. I hope it doesn't cause me any problems. <laughs> um, I, uh, 
I guess he was expressing some concern about my direction in life. And uh, if, you, if you're from my background, you understand this from the, the legalism that we came up in. But uh, uh, and he expressed concern for the children. He said, you know, if you go down that road, where are you going to end up? If you, if you do this, then what are your kids going to be thinking? And where are they going to be going to church or whatever? You know, I, I said, you know, if my kids love Jesus, I'm not worried about them. And I've since learned that this guy has decided to spread that around on me. And uh, I guess warning people about me <laughs> that I would say that. But I, that statement to me, uh, I don't back away from it for one moment. Because I know that love for Jesus, true love for Jesus, if they see that, they're not going to be going out and living however they want to live. They're going to be obedient in a different way. And not a check the boxes kind of way. And not I go to the right church kind of way. Not I get everything lined up doctrinally the right way. But in a way that says, what do I have that I can bring to the altar and give it to him? What can I do with my life for him? That's what I want my kids to have. That's what I want you to have. That's what I want your kids to have. Is to recognize the beauty of Jesus. And otherwise, we're running on something that's going to end up being empty fumes. It can take us a certain way down the road. You can get started with duty and trying to do the right kind of thing. But unless it transforms eventually into something you see in Jesus Christ and through him in God our Father as being truly adorable, truly worthy, as we've just sung, truly the one who's worthy in a way no one else in the world is worthy. Unless it transforms into that, our obedience will always be shallow and superficial in some ways. What we have in Christ is a responding love, not an initiating love, but a responding love. Do you understand the difference? John said we love him because he first loved us. We didn't first love him. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. That's the definition of love. We see that love, and we see a different kind of love, and we say, I love in response to that. Not because I'm driven by fear. There's a place for fear, especially when people are in rebellion. Fear of God, God the judge. But the love that drives us through life is not fear. Not driven by sheer willpower. That will, that will be a sinking ship if you stay on it. You think your will is strong enough. What we need is the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of our hearts with the vision of Jesus Christ. Who is unlike any person who has ever set foot on this earth. Because he is truly God who's come to us. And we catch a glimpse of that. And life is different because of that. To goodness. People are longing to see goodness. We don't see it around. We don't see it on our TV shows. Our TV shows have gotten obsessed with the anti-heroes, you know. They're like bad enough to be kind of good. <laughs> we don't see it on our news channels. We see people who are so angry and bitter and aggressive and attacking each other. We don't see goodness. And we even get to the point where we think goodness is boring. And that's for people who do not have their eyes enlightened by the Spirit of God. The most interesting thing you can ever do is get caught up in the drama of goodness. 
that's motivated by Jesus Christ in the world. And when people really see goodness. Paul sent me an article this week uh, by a former leader of the Satanist church who rejected Christ. He was converted because somebody, some Christian, grabbed a hold of him and hugged him. (laughs) And he felt a goodness in that that he didn't know otherwise. And when he realized this woman was doing that because of Jesus Christ, he gave up on his Satanism and became a follower of Christ. The world is longing for that kind of goodness, the kind of goodness that sees a crippled person and says, oh yeah, stand up. That sees little children that are being turned away and says, let the kids come to me. That sees the leper who's supposed to be running away and says, no, come, I'll heal you. Who goes to eat with sinners and rebukes those who are rebuking them or rebuking him for eating with sinners. This is the goodness we see in Jesus Christ. You have not found it, I assure you, you have not found it in any of your friends like you've seen it in Jesus. Anybody you've been admiring, any mentor you've been following, if they're following Jesus, then use them as an example of someone who's following Jesus, but don't put them on that pedestal. Let Jesus Christ have the place, the highest place in your life and follow him. He is worthy. Well, I want to move on and say just a few words before I close about Jesus being the one who motivates this love. You know, I've had family and friends who have passed away. And I've wanted, I, I, I imagine, I'm not really remembering specific, but I imagine there have been times when I've wished I've had an opportunity to say something to them after they're gone. Wish I'd had the opportunity to tell them what they meant to me. Tell them uh, what they've done for me in my life. But you know, I have never once wanted to do something like this woman did for Jesus. <laughs> Nothing ever that extravagant. <laughs> and do you know why? Even given all the cultural differences, uh, they're not worthy. No one I've ever loved is worthy of that kind of expression. But Jesus is. Last week we were talking about Matthew chapter 25, and it's a a beautiful passage. I think it's very interesting that it's juxtaposed with this passage. Because Matthew 25 says, Jesus calls people, he imagines judgment, and says in judgment, what's going to matter is what you've done. Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the poor? Did you visit the sick and the imprisoned? And when you did that, you did it to me. And, and, and that's, that's beautiful. That is our calling, as, as Steve was talking to us about last week, to be active for Christ. But in some traditions of the church, you get an idea that doing good works is the main thing. And as if you can do good works apart from Jesus and apart from a knowledge of Jesus, and that's all that really matters. That's the main thing that matters. And people will say, well, you see, this is what, this is what Christianity is about. It's about doing good deeds. And I want to say to you, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Jesus. And Jesus motivates us to go out and do good. 
But if you get good deeds while minimizing the greatness of Jesus Christ, you've missed Christianity. We, we talk about how to do good deeds, and we want to talk about that, but we don't love good deeds. We love Jesus. We don't place good deeds on the highest pedestal. We place Jesus on the highest pedestal. And through him, we learn how to serve others and how to do good things. We cannot get that reversed. We have to reject this tendency. Always beware of this tendency to to have pseudo-versions of our faith that ultimately make it into a human project. Where we put human beings on the highest level and say, look at what good things we do. Look at the, the ways we, we bless people and help people and all those kind of things, which are good things, but, but they're not Jesus. We love Jesus and we worship Jesus, no one else. It's very interesting that if you pay attention to that passage, the motivation for doing good in, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, when you did it to them, you did it to me. That's why Mother Teresa and all her good works said that, uh, when she did things, she, she looked to see the face of Christ in the disguise of the poor in the hurting she was serving. And if you, if you read Christian history, you read good, the good works that are talked about among the early church fathers, they talk about this kind of thing. We're doing it, we're seeing Jesus in the person that we're loving and serving. Not just any random good deed, not just a humanly-centered uh, motivation, but because Christ is so great <laughs> And we serve him as we serve others. This love of Christ, this responding love of Christ that drives these actions. And as love motivates our actions, we do things that leave our mark on the world. Love-guided actions like this woman did. She saw an opportunity and she wouldn't let it pass. And Jesus said she did something beautiful. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she had been, has done will be told in her memory. Let me just ask you to think about this as, as we close. What would have happened if this woman had chickened out? You know, she got there, she saw the people, she thought about the consequences, and she backed out. Here's what I think is likely. I think Jesus would have loved her still. I know that's true. I think she'd still be in heaven with us one day, celebrating the goodness of God. But I'd be given a different sermon today. And our New Testaments would be a little bit shorter. This woman, with one courageous, sacrificial act, uh, she wrote herself into the pages of history by saying, I just want to show my love to Jesus. I heard a guy preaching on this passage years ago, and uh, he imagined something. This is a, I'm going way beyond him. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said, I like to think, something along these lines, I like to think that this woman, after, after she had poured all of this on Jesus' body, on his clothes, he said, I like to think that throughout that week, the aroma remained on those clothes. Actually, I think that's likely that it would have. And uh, he said when the, when the soldiers had him, and they were taking off his garments and putting on the, the purple robe, I like to think that they smelled 
this perfume and thought, what is that on this man? And as he was carrying his cross, stumbling, trying to make it up the hill to Calvary, I like to think that as he passed by people, they smelled something and they thought, why? Why that beautiful smell on this condemned criminal? And as the soldiers took off his garments and started to tear them and divide them among themselves, I like to think that they were smelling that precious perfume on them and thinking, why? Why does this man have clothes that smell like this? Maybe years later, after some of those who were there became Christians, maybe they were sitting around and saying, do you remember, do you remember when he passed by us? That smell, that beautiful fragrance, even as he was going to die. Maybe to them it seemed like a miracle at the time. But for those of us who read it many years later, we know the story, and we know that it's because one woman said, I want to show love to Jesus in an excessive, extravagant, reckless way. And so she marked him out in his dying week, down probably to his dying hours. And she placed a beautiful smell by doing a beautiful deed on our Savior's dying body. I hope that I don't get through my whole life without doing something that some people think is reckless and extravagant for Jesus. But whether I do or not, I can tell you this. He is worthy. He's worthy of that from me, and he's worthy from you as well. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus Christ. Help us even now to sense the beauty of this man who is also God. And may we worship you as you deserve in light of your revelation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.